This morning, we're going to continue our series um, for Lent. This is the season of Lent. If you didn't grow up observing Lent, welcome to the club. I did not either. Uh, something that the church has done for a long, long time. Um, different traditions do it different ways, observe it different ways, but just a season to think about our need for salvation which means that we are sinners and that we are mortal, right? That we need to be rescued from these things in some way. And so uh, we're just a time and a season to stop and think about and meditate on these realities. But it's not a season, I want to be really clear, it's not a season of beating ourselves up. It's not 40 days of just punishing ourselves for the bad things we've done. It's 40 days of looking on who we are and what God has done about that in Christ. It's, it's 40 days of marveling at who Jesus is in light of who we are. Does that make sense? So that's what we're doing. We're in this series uh, right now. We've, we've broken up our Matthew series to stop and look uh, at some passages that kind of help us reflect on this reality, the, the reality that we live in, that we are sinners living among sinners. How then do we proceed? And so Today we're going to be in Genesis 22, if you have your Bibles. Uh, uh, I hope you do. They're wonderful things to have. It's near the beginning uh, of the, the Bible. Uh, Genesis is the first book, uh, cha- what we call chapter 22, uh, as we turn inward and reflect. Um, yeah, I'm going to read it to you. Genesis 22. Let's read the first 19 verses. After these things... God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father? And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself this lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went on, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood in order, and he bound up Isaac, his son. He laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he, he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. 
for now I know you fear God. Seeing you do not, you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young, uh, returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Anybody nervous? I promise you're not as nervous as me. Yeah, look, this... Uh, um, I, I'm convinced that this text is so rich that we will barely scratch the surface this morning. I'm convinced that this text is deeply, deeply beautiful. I am also aware that this text is a barrier to faith for people. Uh, people have read this text and, been, and thought, like, what, what kind of God is this, you know? That we, you know, read this text. I think even, even Christians uh, read this text. I know that I did for a long time. You read this text and you're like, okay, well, I don't know what to do with that, so let's just go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Like, like, like you know what, let's read Paul, please, because this is hard. You know, like, what, what, is, what is this? Like, who would, what is this? Also, I think that, you know, we think we have to somehow, like, how am I going to li- live up to faith like this? And also, I think there's just always in the back of my mind whenever I thought about this text in the past. I was like, is this something that God would ask of us? And so I, it's a, it's a, I get that it's, at first look, a really, really difficult text. Uh, but I want to say this. This is a unique situation. It is not normative. It is not prescriptive. Uh, here, here's something that I can say with 100% confidence. God will never ask this of you. He will never, you know why? I know this because he just over and over again, he talks about how much, this, how much after this, so there's this, this Abraham and then you get to Moses and all this stuff. After this, he talks over and over and over again how detestable something like this is. As a matter of fact, in, in Exodus 20, 13, 10 commandments, you shall not murder. God is not for this. Uh, Leviticus 20 goes on for quite a bit. He says this. He says, so say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel, uh, the strangers who sojourn with Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against the man and will cut him off from among his people because he's given one of his children to Molech. To make my sanctuary unclean, to profane my holy name. If the people of the land do all, uh, do not close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech, and do not punish him, put him to death, I'll set my face against that man and his clan and cut them off. Him and all who follow him in their whoring after Molech. Just Deuteronomy 12 says this You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing the Lord hates. They have done for their gods. For they even burnt their sons and their daughters in the fire for their gods. 
God hates this. These people offering their children to Molech, God has said and laid out, he hates this. No way that anything, God is never going to ask you to prove your faith this way. It's not a way that you will be tested. Um, This is God introducing something in a dramatic way that we feel it. Uh, Something new, something important, and something in a unique relationship with a man named Abraham. He had a unique relationship with God. And so this is something unique. You don't have to worry that God's ever going to ask this of you. So, so, what, so why then tell us this? What, what, so to understand this and what, why God would put this in, in Scripture, why he would tell us this, is that I think the first thing we need to do is make sure that we clearly understand what Scripture is. I saw an interview this week. Um, I mean, it was, it was two comedians, so I don't know if this is the place that you go to for your theology. But it was two comedians, and one of them asked the other, like, he's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he said, he said well, tell me about the Bible. What do you think the Bible's about? And I, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. What, what is the Bible? I'm curious. Like, what is the answer going to be? And he says, oh, you know, like, it's Jesus. Yeah, he's like, but I'm really into the Old Testament, you know. And, uh, but, you know, it's, you know, it's about Jesus and stuff. And I'm like, oh, dear, okay, this is not the best answer that I've ever heard, you know. Like, we have to know what Scripture is. And here's the deal. If you take the perspective, and I think most people do, and they begin to talk about this. If you take the perspective, and I thought this for a long time, that the Bible is a book about, of God telling us how to behave and how to act and things to do. If that's primarily what you understand scripture as, is this moral handbook for you and me, you're going to miss a lot. It's not what it is. And you're going to misread a lot. You'll misread this if you think this is primarily a book about God telling us how to be. That's not what this is primarily. Primarily what scripture is, is from beginning to end, God telling us about him, who he is, what he's like, and what he has done. Yes, along the way, we learn things that we have to do because that's true. But from beginning to end, it is a story about God who, the God who created us to be with him and how we rebelled and what he has done and what he is like, drawing us, pursuing us, bringing us back into fellowship and relationship with him, which is the thing that your soul deeply longs for. All the things that you do, all the things that you pursue, all the things that we're looking for that aren't him are really things that that he has promised to fulfill in a better way, and we're just looking for lesser answers. Does that make sense? That's what scripture is. If you understand that that's what it's about, God revealing himself to you, then it makes sense when you jump all the way to Jesus. He's died, he's risen from the dead, and he's walking, and these these two people are walking down this, this road going to... Uh, Emmaus and Jesus appears. They don't recognize him, and he they are, he begin, they, they begin to tell him all that's happened to him, and and he hears them. And at the end of this whole thing, he uh, this talk, he says to them, "You guys are slow to anger. You're foolish. Didn't you know? Didn't you read? Didn't you understand in scriptures that ev- all this had to happen?" And this is then he opens up scripture in talking about the Old Testament, and he begins to teach them how everything in the Bible had to do with him. It has to do with Jesus. All the laws, all the prophets, all the Psalms. Yes, we learn things, but it all is about Jesus. If we don't understand that, we're going to misread the text. We're going to not understand it. We're not going to get what we need from it, and we actually might take something very harmful away from it. This is a text like the rest of scripture that is to tell us something about what God is like and we see that best in Jesus. So in some way, this is best about Jesus. And one of the things that he's preparing us to understand is 
not just who he is, but how he works in history. If God exists outside of time and space, if he is eternal, how he's chosen to operate inside time and space is crazy. He's chosen to work with us. Uh, he keeps making covenants. He keeps going to human beings and saying, hey, here's what I'm going to do. It's amazing. He chooses to work with people, bringing people into relationship with him, tying himself to them with promises that he makes to them, and then doing things to bring them to himself. This is how God works. He makes these promises, these commitments. And it's not this partnership in the sense that, um, uh, that, that like it's an equal partnership, like God does his part and we do our part. It's not that kind of partnership. It's more like, um, I, I don't know, like um, uh, you're working on, your, working on a car with your kid, right? You know? Like it's, like it's like, oh, you're helping me. Like hand me that screwdriver. They can't find the screw. Actually, it's more like you working on your car and your kid just taking a nap, but then like you guys fix the car. Is that kind of that? Or like, you know, when you're like, you go to give a gift to your spouse, you know, and you're like, they're like, you write their name on the, they write their name on the gift, and you're like, hey, this is from us. It's like that kind of like us working together. It's all him, and he's just written our name on the gift, you know, on the thing as well, right? But but he's consistently ties himself to us in partnership. He does it over and over again. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve, it's un, it's unreal. He says, Adam and Eve sin, right? They've, they've rejected God. The story at the very beginning of the Bible, they've rejected God, so we're going to go our own path. And, and God doesn't say, all right, I'm done with you guys. He says, that, and he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to fix this later in a way that you guys don't understand. No, he says, I'm going to fix this through the descendant of this woman. He's committed to saving us through the descendant of Eve at the very beginning. Well, that's insane. He's committed to us in such a way that he will work salvation through us. How beautiful. And he keeps doing it over and over again, no, no matter how many times we fail. We talked about Noah last week, how God commits. Hey, listen, here's the deal. He, he decreates, and then after, it's over, after the flood is over, he says to Noah, I'm never going to decreate the world ever again. This is the pledge that I make to you. I'm tying myself to humanity in a way that I promise you that I will deal with evil in a way that doesn't involve decreation. Unbelievable. He keeps committing himself over and over again. And to Abram, to Abraham, this guy Abraham, he makes another promise, another commitment, another covenant. And this is what he says to, uh, to uh, Abraham in Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarah. Her name shall be Sarah. I'll bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, his other son, might live before you. And God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. Siri's trying to talk to me. Sorry. Siri and Sarah are apparently very close. Sorry. Where was I? It was a very dramatic moment. Okay. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, his son by another woman, I have heard you. Behold, I 
have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I shall make him into a great nation. But I'll establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you all at this time next year. So we have this. He has tied himself again, this time not just to the world, not to decreating the world, but to this one person to whom he, Abraham and his descendants, through whom he will bless the whole earth. So I'm going to do this, and it says this, at this time God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham said to him, here I am. He said, take your son. So God has in this covenant relationship, he's gone to this man named Abraham, promised that he's going to give him a son, and then he goes to Abraham and says, I want you to take this son, and I want you to go, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. This is a test. It says, Abraham tested Isaac. And so I think that I hear this, and I think, what, what a terrible, terrible test, and I think I think awful things about God testing us, but the, the truth is, is that, that tests can be good or bad, Right? You could test, test can be good or bad. Probably depending on the desired outcome, depending on the motive. So you look at the Garden of Eden. God says, he makes Adam and Eve, he creates them and says, listen, here, you and I are gonna, you're gonna rule in my place over all of creation. That's what's gonna happen. I've created you, I've made all this stuff, and you're gonna rule over everything. And I'm gonna provide for you with all of the fruit, all the things that you could possibly ever need, I'm gonna give to you. But there's one thing, don't eat of that tree. There's one tree, just don't eat it. All the other trees, eat as much as you want. One tree, don't eat of it. Test. A test. And we think of that like, oh, why why would you do that? It's an opportunity. This test is an opportunity to show and to demonstrate our willingness, our affection, our trust, and our belief in God to partner with him in the blessings that he has for us. That is a test to show, demonstrate. It's an opportunity. It's a test opportunity, like, uh, like an opportunity at your job, right? Hey, can you do this, this, and this? It's like, imagine if you... Looked at your child and said, hey, listen, here's the deal. If you want to you have this thing, you want to you buy this, I tell you what's going to happen. If you save up half of it, I'll pay the other half. It's a chance for them to demonstrate and to work towards a thing and to trust that you provide the rest at the end. It's not just saying, like, listen, you got to go get a job. You, no, no, it's a chance for them to prove their true desire and passion, where their affection and longing lies. And you give them that opportunity a chance to demonstrate. Another test happens in the Garden of Eden. Satan comes, and his goal is not to give an opportunity, but to trap two different kinds of tests. One, an opportunity to partner and receive blessing. The other, a trap. Serpent comes along, says, hey, listen, uh, he tricks them into disobeying God. Why? So that he can trap them and destroy that relationship. Bad desires. This is a test, another test, but it is a test for Abraham to show, to demonstrate his trust of God in this situation so that God brings him into this relationship and, and, part, and blesses him and, and gives him all this that he has and wants him to have. And Abraham has this opportunity in this test to obey or disobey. Now, so the first time Abraham's been tested. As a matter of fact, at the very beginning, Abraham uh, got when Abraham's introduced to us uh, as a, under a different name, Abram. Uh, Genesis twelve says this: The Lord says to this man named Abram, "Go from your country, from your kindred, your father's house, to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you uh, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I'll curse." 
And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Also, though, he's failed some tests. He's, he's failed some tests. He, matter of fact, not once, but twice he lies about who his wife is. They're going into this new territory. Twice. And he's going into this new territory and he looks at his wife. who She's in her 70s and still smoking, apparently. Hot. She, like, she walks in and he's like, hey, listen, here's the deal. You're a good-looking woman. They're going to see you and they're going to kill me to take you if they know that I'm your spouse. So tell everybody you're my sister. And they get there, and, and, and the king, the first time in Egypt, this king in the, in the area takes her. He's like, oh my goodness, she's beautiful. He hears about her and takes her. And God actually has to come in. Send, he, he's placing this covenant promise at risk by, by lying about who his wife is. And God, has to, God steps in and rescues, sends plagues on the house of Egypt. And, and he, he, he sends a dream to this king. And he actually comes out and is like, hey, what have you done? To, you, you almost let me take your wife as mine. Like, why would you do this? And he sends him away. Like twice he has lied about who his spouse is and who his wife is and puts the covenant that God has made with him. It's in seeming jeopardy. Also, Sarah hatches, hatches this plan. Hey, listen, God's promised us this kid. But it's not happening. Hey, you know what? And in line with what, what, what happened in that time and in other cultures, she says, hey, listen, here's what I need you to do. I want you to take my wife. You have to give me a child. Take my, uh, take my, um, my maidservant. And you, you, you uh, lay with, you give, uh, I'll have a child through her. You lay with her, I'll have this child, and this will be my child. And so Abram's like, yeah, I guess that's what God wants. And they do that. Uh, unbelievable. And God's like, no, it's not the way. This is not the way. Twice, more than twice, three times, he's tested and he fails. And here comes this other test. God is not surprised by the outcome. Anytime. As a matter of fact, every time he fails, God steps in and provides a way anyway. Protects, protects Hagar and his wife, protects the covenant anyway. Every time they fail the covenant, God steps in and protects anyway. So God is sovereign in protecting and caring over this whole, whole thing. And Abraham also has this other thing that's going on. This thing that he saw happen. He had this wild, wild experience. God, he has this vision where uh, God tells him to gather these, these animals and he takes them and he, and he cuts them in half and he splits them apart and he lays half on one side and half on the other side. He lays them on either side and he's in this vision and he's having, in this vision, he's having to drive birds away and, and keep these, these, these pieces of sacrifice. They're cut in half. He, he has to keep them away. And then as he's in, in this vision, all of a sudden God appears to him as a flaming fire, smoking pot. And passes between the two pieces of animal. What a wild dream. What a wild vision. And what we learn later is as you look at it and you study it and you look at what, how, what this would possibly mean, what it's saying is, is God is affirming, affirming this covenant between him and Abram. Between him and Abraham. He's pro, he's, uh, he, he is affirming it. He's basically like a signature on a piece of paper. And the signature is this. What he's saying is, and they would do this, they would take the animal in, in, in that culture at the time, they would take animals and they would lay them there and, and you would walk through, both of you would pass through. And what you're saying in passing through the, between the two animals is, if I break my promise to you, if this contract is broken, then may I be cut apart like this animal is. 
It was a visual sign to remind the value. But Abraham never passes through. Only God does. Abraham knows that God has promised that if the covenant is not fulfilled, he himself will be ripped apart instead of Abraham. He himself will be torn apart instead of Abraham. God has promised he'll somehow rip himself apart if this covenant fails. Abraham knows how committed God is to this covenant. So when he says, take your son, your son that you love, Isaac, your only son, your beloved son, and sacrifice him, somehow Abraham doesn't understand how God's going to do this, but he knows that this is the promised son. This is the hope of the entire world. That's who Isaac is. God's told him so. And God will not fail his covenant. This is not a, do you love me more than you love your son? This is, do you trust me to keep my promises even when it doesn't make sense? So Abraham saddles his donkey and he goes on the journey and when he sees this place, this mountain that he's supposed to go to, he looks at the people that's with him and he says an amazing thing. He says, hey, you guys stay here. We're gonna go up there and then we're gonna come back. He goes prepared to sacrifice, but he tells people that he and his son are coming back. He doesn't understand how, he doesn't know how, but he knows that his God is faithful to this covenant. He thinks apparently to himself that this is the way God is going to save the world. Somehow, through the beloved son being offered up on a mountain, God's going to save everything. Doesn't make any sense to him, but that's what he must believe. Because he goes on, he walks up the mountain. The way that God is going to bless the whole earth is to kill the beloved son on a mountain? How can this possibly be? And he can't believe it's true, and he goes anyway. He doesn't make sense, but he obeys. Abraham obeys because he believes God will provide. That's what obedience is. Obedience is acting because you believe something is true. He does this because he believes something deeply, that God is going to provide. That's what faith does. It, It leads to obeying. When it doesn't make sense in our head, just doing it anyway. I struggle to understand sometimes uh, what God tells me to do with my money. Well, how am I supposed to be happy? Don't you want me to be happy? Don't you love me? And you want me to do what with my money? I don't even have half of what I need to close to be happy. And you want me to give some of it away? That's crazy. It doesn't make sense in my head. He says, I need you to believe that I'll provide. And I think, oh, so you're going to provide the boat for me? And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to provide the boat. I'm going to provide what you need. And I'm like, but I want the boat. He's like, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to provide. I sometimes don't understand what he's told us to do in my life with relationships. This relationship, I have to have this relationship to make me happy. That's not good for you. But I have to have this relationship. It's not good for you. I have to have this job. That's not good for you. That's not what I want for you. And we have to believe, even though it doesn't make sense with our eyes and our thinking, that God is going to provide. And so we obey, even when it doesn't make sense. We obey when it doesn't make sense in our hearts. I'll read you something that, uh, about this that uh, the uh, theologian Caitlin Estes wrote. It said, Abraham and Sarah were given this incredible promise from God. In her old age, with graying hair and slowing body, after decades of waiting and weeping, she was told she would bear a son. But it was 25 years between when God first spoke of his plan for Abraham's offspring in the birth of Isaac. Can you imagine the ups and downs during those 25 years, always waiting, wondering, questioning? This promise was given by the same God who called Abraham out of Ur and blessed him immensely. He's proven himself faithful, but how, when, will it really happen? And at some point along the way, Sarah convinced herself 
that God needed her to do something to make the promise happen. She came up with a plan. It still checked off the box of God's promise. But on a much more realistic timeline, let Hagar bear this child. Certainly this was it. It was the only thing that made sense to her after years of continued infertility. The only only, only way it made sense was for her to step in and do something about it. Sometimes our hearts want something, even a good thing, so badly that we want to act like Adam and Eve and try to take the promise for ourselves. And even when our hearts want even a good thing, we still must obey because we believe that God will provide the thing that we most deeply need and want even though we don't know it. God will provide even when our minds and our eyes tell us this can't be the way, even when our hearts tell us this can't be the way. Obedience is believing that God will provide even in those times. That he will provide far more than we could have ever dreamed possible. That if we knew and could taste what he actually was going to provide for us, we would never think of anything else. But we haven't even dreamed of how he would provide. He tests us and puts us in situations where we have to choose obedience because he loves us so that we will grow. And this shows up, what we believe shows up in our hands. Uh, This guy named uh, James, after Jesus uh, died and and ascended into heaven, he wrote about this. He wrote this in James 2. Uh, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poor, poorly clothed and, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things they need for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. I don't know why he has a southern accent. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. Scripture was fulfilled. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Faith shows up. In what we do, we are saved by faith and faith alone, but faith will always show up in what we do. Because faith is being obedient because we believe God will provide even when it doesn't make sense. That's what faith is. We can believe because God has proven to you and me that there is no length that he will not go to, to provide for us. We find out later um, in the history of Israel, uh, God has created this nation and, and, and they go to build a temple to God. This is, this is a long time after Abraham. 
And this is what Solomon goes to begin the temple. This is in Second Chronicles 3. It says this, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The temple that he builds is on this mountain in this area. It's where Jerusalem, where this happens, where, where Abraham takes Isaac and binds him on this altar and God stops his hand. This is the same part of the world right outside where the temple will be, be built where Jesus Christ is crucified, where the Father does not stop his hand and actually allows himself to be torn apart to fulfill the part of the covenant that you and I could not fulfill. Just like Abraham takes the wood and places it on the back of Isaac and he walks up the hill, Jesus Christ will carry the cross up this hill and be crucified, but this time God will not stop the hand. It will kill him. So that you and I can have life and know that we will never be torn apart for our sin because Christ was. This story is about God's provision. And we know that even when we fail in our faithfulness, God will not fail in his. Uh, Paul writes this in in 2 Timothy. He writes this. He says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. He has already torn him apart so that we, by faith, know that he will not tear us apart. Here's how we move forward. author of Hebrews says this therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and seated, is seated at the right hand of God the throne of God consider him That's how we do this. We consider him and what he has done. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed uh, addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every Son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you, have, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and love? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all disciplines seem painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward... 
When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We live now looking to Christ, what he endured, what he went through to have all that he has and know that, when our, that we have been made sons and that when, we are tri- when, when trials come, when tests come, when discipline comes, it is to strengthen us in our walk, to strengthen us as humans, to strengthen us as people. When we in our lives are wrestle and struggle in these tests to put to death the things that maybe we hold dear, to die to the things that we hold dear that somehow get in the way of us loving and following God. When we put to death bitterness and anger, when we put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, unforgiveness, when we put to death impatience, and the Bible calls them deaths because it feels like a death trying to do this. When you put them to death, what we find is that the goodness of the gospel Grows in the fertile soil where Christ and the Holy Spirit have put to death these things in our heart that have taken root that distract us from him. And in their place, what grows is always something better. What comes back is always something greater. When we die to the thing that we hold on to, that if we just had this one thing, then everything would be okay. When we learn to die to that, what grows in its place, God promised us, is his provision that is always far far greater than anything that we could have dreamed of. He provides what we long for and what we need. So we come to the table. Jesus uh, takes the bread and he breaks it and he takes the wine and he pours it out and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is our new covenant. This is how we think about everything now. This is our new relationship with God. It's in Christ who was torn apart on the cross that we might have life. So when we come to the table, we come to the table as a family, uh, believing in our heart, confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we take part of this as a family, knowing that we have this promise from him that he's going to come again and make all things new. And we live our lives in light of that hope that all of the things that have been taken, all of the loss will be restored far greater. When we are willing to die to things that we think we absolutely have to have that are contrary to what he says, when we by faith, not because we stop desiring a thing, but because we believe him, he provides far more. Maybe not on the timeline that we want. Maybe not the thing that we wanted. But he will provide far more than we could have ever dreamed. That's the promise. That's what faith, that's how we live. And it is beautiful. Let's pray. Father, give us strength. Give us wisdom to see how great your promises are. As we participate in communion, as we come and take body broken and blood spilled, that we may have life, may we be comforted by your provision, by your provision of the lamb, by your provision of your son, May we be overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus who did not, even though the cross was before him, consider it beneath him, but let go of everything that he deserved and came to earth to die that that I might live, that I might be called a son, that I might be called a child of God. And I know that I complain about my mild sufferings, my mild inconveniences, and then my very real hurts and my very real losses. 
and you know and you hear and you love, may I know that in these testings that you are strengthening me as your son. May I trust you to obey when it doesn't make any sense and there are things that do not make sense to me with my own thinking. Do not make sense to me with my own heart. Increase my faith. That even when it doesn't make sense to me, I obey. Hmm. Strengthen me now in this moment. In Christ's name we pray, amen.